when people step on the scale and they're down X number of uh, pounds, they say, you know, hallelujah, like I'm meeting my weight loss goal. And the question really is, you know, from where have you lost the weight? You know, where you want to lose it from, of course, is body fat and not just the stuff that we all want to lose, which is, you know, it makes X part of our body look not the way we want it to look, trying to be as politically correct as possible. But, you know, body fat that's stored like within our visceral cavity, for example, which we know metabolically is a disaster. So can we lose body fat from these places and can we then preserve what we would like to preserve? You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Hey there, Dr. Emily Kybert here with Muscle Medicine Podcast. This podcast is for you if you're wondering how much protein should I be eating? How can I lose some weight? What's the best form of exercise for me as I age? And how do I stay strong in my body? Today's podcast is with Dr. Stu Phillips. He's a PhD, a professor in the Department of Kinesiology and School of Medicine at McMaster University, which is up in Canada, our neighbors to the north. And he's a tier one Canadian research chair in skeletal muscle health, director of the McMaster Center for Nutrition, Exercise, and Health Research, and also the director of PACE, Physical Activity Center of Excellence. He has produced so many research publications out there. 479 is what it says up on ResearchGate. And his research really focuses on the impact of nutrition, specifically protein, and exercise as it affects skeletal muscle and muscle protein synthesis. And he's really dedicated to educating the public on the understanding of how exercise and dietary protein impacts body composition, which is how much fat, how much muscle is hanging on the body, our strength and function as we age, specifically sarcopenia, which we talk about in this podcast. And sarcopenia is the loss of skeletal muscle mass and function as we age. And a lot of us think, oh, you know what? That's going to be us down the road when we're 50, 60, 70, 80. But really, we need to start thinking about maintaining our muscle as early as 30 years old. So this is really a podcast for everyone. Stu is such a quality human, so accessible and easy to understand, and just like an overall good guy. So I'm really excited to have him on. I hope you enjoy this episode. Stu Phillips, welcome to Muscle Medicine Podcast. I am super excited to have you on. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. So we talk a lot about the muscle, how to feed it, how to train it, and you are the guy, one of the top guys to go to for those answers. Can you, for people who don't know why muscle is so important, can you give us a little glimpse into why muscle is important? 
Yeah, I mean, I, I think everybody recognizes that, um, you know, muscle is our locomotor organ, like we need it to move around, to get around, to do the things we want to do. It's sort of become increasingly stamped, at least on my psyche and that of the people who, who train with me, that, that muscle is an important, essentially important metabolic organ as well. So it's a, it's a highly metabolically active organ in your body. And I know everybody says, what does that mean? Well, so if, you, if you're burning X number of calories in a given day, uh, a lot of it is due to the activity that you do. But the, essentially, your sort of basal rate of energy burning is when you boil it right down, it really comes down to two tissues. One is your liver, because it's very metabolically active, doing things all the time that obviously we have no idea about. And the other is your muscle, uh, and it's mostly by virtue of its mass. So uh, we look at it as being centrally important in expending energy. So as an important sort of burner of calories, if you like, or your body's uh, almost like your body's furnace. And in saying that, it's important in regulating also your, your blood glucose, your blood sugar, and as well your, your blood lipids. So it's a, it's a site of tremendous, as I said, energy expenditure. It burns a lot of glucose. It stores a lot of blood glucose. So it's important in regulation of your blood sugar. So your risk for type 2 diabetes and probably also your risk for lots of lipid disorders as well. So we think it's centrally important, not just from obviously allowing you to get around, but to, as a metabolic sort of control point in your body. Yeah. And it's like the one factor that protects us as we age, right? Yeah, exactly. I, yeah, I, I joke, and I, but it's not sort of uh, with a bit of half-truth is that, you know, my research over the 22-odd years I've been at McMaster University has turned from research to me-search. So as, I, as I've gotten older, I'm more keenly interested in what it is that I can do to uh, keep myself uh, to be as, uh, as healthy and as aging as well as I can. So most people probably maybe have heard the term sarcopenia, and that's the age-related loss of muscle mass and then muscle function. And so we're trying to now look at interventions to keep people as they age more independent, obviously in good health, and then able to do the things that they want to do and being able to move and get around and to do all the activities of daily living. You need to have a good amount of functional uh, skeletal muscle to do that. And when we talk about like as we age, I think a lot of us think, oh, 65 plus, that will be me in a couple of decades. But I think it's important to be focusing on it when we're younger, like 30s, 40s. Why do you think a lot of people think, oh, it's down the road, it's not now? <laughs> yeah, it's a good question. Uh, I listened to a talk that I, I was part of um, not too long ago, and a famous uh, Canadian who's been a huge advocate, he and his wife of uh, physical activity for health, uh, named Hal Johnson, and he's 60, I think he's probably about 66 now. And he said, it's not that at 65, you become old. Although when we recruit people for our studies and we talk about older, uh, it's probably people over the age of 65. And so that's the nuclear sort of retirement age. But he said, at some point, you need to begin to create a vision of your future you. And I don't know when for most people that happens, but uh, I think when people maybe not turn 30, I can remember turning 30 and didn't think it was a big deal. When I turned 40, you're like, okay. Uh, and then when I turned 50, it was definitely, I'm like, okay, like uh, I'm getting up there. And I, 
about five years ago, I took over the directorship of a center at McMaster called the Physical Activity Center of Excellence. And the sort of median age of people in that center, it's a community program that we run, is about 72, 73 years. So I began sort of being surrounded by people who were looking at health conditions and, you know, experiencing sort of declines in health at the later stages of their life. And I began to think, you know what, I have to begin to put an investment into my health probably earlier than I I probably even did. And, you know, I'm somebody who talks about exercise and its benefits. And uh, for a lot of people, I think it's not until something happens or you're told, hey, you have or a diagnosis, unfortunately, that they have this watershed idea. Wow, maybe, maybe I should be doing something. Yeah. A lot of your research is around aging and protein requirements. And that yeah. as we age, we actually require more protein, which I think more people should know. Why do we require more protein as we age? I think you know the backdrop to the to the story of protein is uh, is one of how it's determined, and uh, the Institute of Medicine, which sets our current dietary reference intakes, clings to um, a number of 0.8 grams of protein per kilo. And I'm sure for a lot of people, you know, you have no concept of what that is, but it, it, it's not a particularly large amount of protein, in my estimation. The science that we've done, and not just ourselves, lots of other labs have contributed to it, uh, would suggest that older people would at least benefit from about 50% more than that, so about 1.2 grams per kilo per day, and may even get benefits from intakes that are higher than that. Of course, it's always the the double-edged sword. People say, oh, you know, protein causes your kidneys to fail, and we could talk about that for a long time, but the research that we've done shows that there's no evidence for that. And protein doesn't cause your bones to dissolve, which is the other bugaboo, or give you cancer as well. So, you know, we, we're gradually beginning to try and turn back the clock on all of these things that people say protein is responsible for. And, you know, in this sort of diet war culture these days, it's not, you know, you pick your any macronutrient. So carbohydrates 30 years ago were good. Now they're not. Uh, fat 30 years ago was bad. Now it's not. And of course, the devil is in the details. You know, refined carbohydrates, definitely a, a huge disservice to people's dietary intake, uh, probably uh, definitely trans fats and processed foods. So if you want to pick an enemy in this whole fight, it's, um, it's not fruits and vegetables, and it's probably not meat or dairy or, or whole grains, but you know the stuff down the middle of the grocery store. So these value-added, created, contrived, conceived, whatever you want to say, products where lots of sugar, lots of fat, uh, they taste great, you know, so it's hard to uh, not eat just one that people need to avoid. Yeah. That was a long answer to the <laughs> question, but you did say, you said, you know, what if there's something you want to get off your chest? So I'm Yes, like, get it off. You know, oftentimes you hear people say like high protein. And I think you spoke to a little bit of like, really, we should be replacing high protein with optimal protein. You, t- you just mentioned like how the RDA has underestimated, you know, our dietary needs. What is optimal protein? Yeah. So I think, again, looking at the history of how dietary guidance has been set up, 
probably about 20 years ago, we begun to recognize that. So, you know, post-World War II, dietary guidance was aimed at prevention of deficiency, which was a, you know, it's a massively laudable goal, you know, iron fortification, the addition of vitamin D with the elimination of things like rickets and vitamin C. You know, people know these things, you know, we don't see scurvy anymore because we know what vitamin C does now. But the point in the end is, is that a lot of dietary guidance was about prevention of deficiency. Awesome. Fantastic. And then we began to realize that, you know, beyond prevention of deficiency, some of these vitamins, minerals, nutrients, sorts, you know, had benefits. And so we began to talk about more optimal uh, intakes of these things. And I, and I think that's the, in the history of where protein is along the guidance is that we're sort of dragging some people who have been stuck in the prevention of deficiency and will never really let go of that into this sort of optimal range. But defining optimal is a lot more difficult than prevention of deficiency. So as soon as you prevent deficiency, a person, you know, if they have a disease state, it's it's gone, it's eliminated. And, and we certainly know that um, if people are, are protein and energy malnourished, for example, we got to give them a bit of protein, give them a bit of energy, and they do much, much better. But then what it takes to take that person from not malnourished to an optimal state that's a tougher proposition. And so I think that's where the muscle outcome is probably one of the most tangible things that we can point to for protein uh, has really gained uh, its traction. Yeah. During these times of pandemic where a lot of places, gyms are closed, is it possible to maintain your muscle mass just through protein intake? Like let's say, cause I know some of your research is around immobilization. Um, is it possible to maintain it without giving it resistance training? Let's say hypothetical, you did not have weights at home, the gym's closed, you don't want to lose your muscle mass, is protein enough? <laughs> yeah, a great question. Look, I, I, we're, we're fond in my group and when I talk to my students and you know, immobilization or disuse um, or bed rest is probably where most people would say, you know, yeah, I can... I can point to that. That's that's not a good situation. We call that, and we're I'm borrowing a term from a good friend and colleague, uh, Doug Padden Jones. This catabolic crisis, where you know your muscle is made to be loaded, and it maintains its shape and its mass and its function and everything. The more you do. So, you know, there's the activity equation. But if you're inactive or like a lot of people during the, particularly the beginning phase of the pandemic and, you know, the whole lockdown, gyms closed, people were told to stay home. So it's inevitable that you're going to get some, I mean, people, you know, athletes know it. It's, it's deconditioning. For athletes, they train, they get it back. And for young people, we sort of have these dips and, you know, you take a cast off your arm when you're, 10 or 15 or probably in your 20s, muscle comes back pretty, pretty quickly. If you're an older person, and I don't know, you know, where does aging start? Uh, for me, it's, it's 55 this year. Uh, it'll be 56 next year. So yeah, it's but that's a personal observation. But, you, you know, you get my point is that as we get older, these disuse periods have a more pronounced effect on people's muscle function both metabolically and the recovery of that mass. So, you know, if you're somebody who's 60 getting a knee replacement, you're more than willing to have the replacement because, you know, your knee is so painful, but the disuse that accompanies that is, man, is it, it, it is tough to recover from. 
So these sorts of things, protein helps, but the, the use part of the, you know, undoing the disuse is really the, the, you know, the key ingredient. So you can probably do a little bit with protein, but you really have to move and sort of work on that almost recovery or rehab angle to, to get things back to where they were. But um, so, yeah, our, our trite phrase in the lab is to say, it's hard to out nutrition inactivity. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You can maximize your chances, but uh, the only way to undo inactivity is to be active and probably to be a little bit more active to sort of build yourself back up. But that's the classical, you know, rehab uh, paradigm, right? You have a you have a dip, you have a valley, and then you try and recover and get yourself back to where you were. As we get older, it just uh, unfortunately gets more difficult to do. Yeah, you talk a lot about the timing of our protein. And I know for a lot of us, well, not myself, I just had six eggs for breakfast, but a lot of us in, <laughs> ingest our protein at dinner, right? But it's yeah. important to not just have a big dose of protein at dinner. Can you talk about the timing of when we're taking in our protein? Yeah. So like really in a nutshell, the response to protein from your body's perspective is what we call a dose response. So in other words, if you have no protein, you get this sort of response. And if you have five grams, you get X. If you have 10 grams, you get X plus a certain amount up to a certain dose and then it plateaus. And that's a classic sort of what we call dose response saturated. So, you know, one aspirin's great, two aspirin's okay, three doesn't do you any more good than two, and four is just overkill. So with protein, we think that that probably tops out. I know people like whole numbers, so I'll sort of use a whole number, although I'm not a huge fan of that, but probably around 30 grams in a, in a, in a given meal. So if you had, you know, a lot of people, minus yourself with six eggs at breakfast, so bravo, the egg is probably, it's the most uh, downtrodden, nutrient-dense uh, protein food out there. It's taken, a, it's taken a kicking in the dietary guidelines for years, is that most people have about, you know, between eight to 10 grams of protein at breakfast. And they follow dietary guidance, which is, you know, very heart healthy. So high fiber breakfast, not dismissing fiber as a nutrient, but um, it would be a better idea to take some of the, say, 50 or 60 grams that you're eating at your dinner time meal and say, you know what, it's okay to have an egg or two eggs or a glass of milk at breakfast time. And similarly, at lunchtime, when we tend to up our protein intake just a little bit more, is to say, you know, instead of that 60 grams of dinner, maybe some of those, that protein could be sort of moved into our, our lunchtime meals so that each time we eat a meal, we sort of hit the top part of that dose response and get the, the benefits of doing that. And the benefits would be like the stimulation of muscle protein synthesis. It Exactly. Yeah. So the, uh, the the protein synthetic response that is going to then contribute to the maintenance, or if you're a younger person and you're doing a lot of weightlifting, uh, the gain in muscle mass. Yeah. And can you speak to the quality of protein? And we're going to say like taking out the emotional or emotive response around animals from a very evidence-based perspective, is all protein created equal? Look, uh, you said about the emotional aspect of things, and I'm 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 the last person to dismiss anybody that chooses, you know, not to eat meat. Veganism is a lifestyle for whatever religious or ethical or however you want to frame it, health reasons. 
power to you. It's a, it's a very healthy way. It can be a very healthy way to eat. And as a, you know, died in the wool omnivore, uh, that's not how I choose to eat. But I, I think that, you know, the fundamental truism and the biological reality is that uh, animal derived proteins on average are higher quality. And by quality, we talk about uh, the digestibility of the protein. And that encompasses concepts uh, like the presence of anti-nutritional compounds like fiber, which again, you know, it's, it, that's not a bad thing if you're consuming way too much uh, food and things that you don't need. Something anti-nutritional like fiber is, is a good thing. But at the same time, the quantity of what we call essential amino acids that you need are inherently lower in, in plants than they are in, uh, in animals. And I think that there's a lot of cognitive dissonance, to be honest with you, out there with people who are vegan vegetarians and do very well, thank you very much, to say, look, most plants have all of the essential amino acids. And I'm not dismissing that, but some are in very low quantities. And, you know, look, the world has figured this out. And, and I'm going to, you know, create a, a, a sort of a teleological argument. That it doesn't matter where you go in the world, where animal protein is in shorter supply, so you can go to the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, you can go to China, you can go to South America, you can go to the West Indies and the Caribbean, and everybody has found out that beans and a rice or a legume and a grain are the best way to eat your protein. And lots of people say, oh, you don't need them together. They don't need to be complemented. My point is, is, well, why have people figured that out? There must be some pressure that has evolved to say, you know, the people who were just bean eaters, they died when a big plague came around, or just rice eaters, they died. And so you do need those, but we are not exposed on a, on a regular basis, human beings, to the type of plague and pestilence, you know, minus the current pandemic, which is probably the closest we as, as modern day quote-unquote, humans will get to what it was that uh, evolutionarily forced people to realize that those two protein sources complement each other for optimal immune function, growth, all the things that we take for granted now, or at least in the, uh, the westernized world. So I think it's worth just pointing out to people that in our society where the choices of vegetarian or vegan foods now is multitudinous and you know a lot of them contrived I'll, I'll agree that is easier to follow that lifestyle than it probably ever has been but you still have to be pretty judicious about how you pick your foods and you know in my opinion being an omnivore makes life a little bit easier now you know plenty of people will say well no I'm a vegan and I have and I'm like you know no problem I get it. Like lots of well-informed people make good choices, no issues at all. I think for a lot of people, with kids especially, it's a tough go. Not impossible. Just you have to be very conscientious about how you eat. Yeah. Do you think, just because you mentioned kids, do you think, and I don't know if there's a research out there, but do, do children have a specific protein need that's different from adults? Yeah, I mean, you know, growth is an incredible stimulus for protein deposition, right? I mean, when we look at ourselves in our first year from the day we were born to how much bigger we were year one, uh, we'll never grow that, that fast ever in the rest, you know, for the rest of our life. 
even, you know, guys who say, oh, I'm, you know, I'm taking this in the gym, I'm doing that. I'm like, you'll never get back to that sort of growth phase. Uh, so protein needs are far greater in kids than they are uh, in adults. The difference is, is that, you know, uh, if you're a little person, you don't need to eat much food to hit that target. When you're a bigger person, obviously things are a little bit different. And I, you know, I look at uh, sort of growth as occurring, you know, basically age of birth up to say 18 years of age on average. But then in this, in your twenties, you enjoy this sort of heyday of, uh, it's not growth, but it's certainly not decline let's say and so and then into your 30s and I don't know what it is but you know you probably you've got a job you spend a lot more time doing what you and I are doing which is sitting down in front of a computer and all of a sudden your life isn't quite as active as it was and you notice that you, you're eating like you were in your 20s and then you get on the scale you're like whoa hold on what what, what just happened uh, maybe you're not training for the sports or doing the things that you were doing in your 20s and then into your 40s and 50s you go into storage mode and that's not storage of muscle which you're losing but storage of body fat so you know kids are it's just this awesome time where hormones and growth factors are flying around and sort of everything that they can put into their bodies protein wise uh, for most kids get deposited and uh, contributes to their stature and their muscles and everything else and the more active they are then they they grow broad shoulders and like my three sons, uh, <laughs> they get bigger than stronger than I am. So it's, it's a bit humbling to, uh, to admit that, uh, you know, if we got in tight, they could probably take me in a, in a bit of a brawl. So. <laughs> I've heard that the first meal of the day is the one you need to get right in terms of protein. Is that due to satiety? Is it to stimulate the muscle protein synthesis? Like from the beginning of the day, what's your thoughts around that? Yeah, that's um, the word, right? Breakfast, break your fast. It's the it's the first meal of the day, and I think uh, probably there's been a bit of a bit a, a bit of disservice done to the it's the most important meal of the day. But I do think it, um, if you want a sort of metabolic uh, phrase, it it sets the tone. And, uh, you know, so if you're going to break your, your fast with a lot of refined carbohydrates and sugar, you can expect a big rise in blood glucose and then a big valley on the other side. And so you get that 10 a.m., you know, sort of what's going on. Oatmeal, great choice. No, no question. Very, very satiating, very filling, but it doesn't do a whole lot to stimulate muscle protein synthesis, as we talked about. So, you know, to me, from a satiety standpoint, from a stimulation of protein synthesis standpoint, and probably from a degree of sort of metabolic, almost patterning for the rest of the day, I do think it's worth um, trying to get that protein dose right at the first meal. Personally, I wake up and I'm a morning exercise person. I know it's, you know, maybe probably against some of the things I say, but I'm not in it for performance. I exercise, lift or ride or do whatever, do fast almost every morning. I mean, mine is probably a, a black coffee before I get on the bike or in the weight room. And I eat afterwards. Having said that, it's usually a higher protein. Uh, my go-to meal has been something with Greek yogurt. Greek yogurt has been the, the, the savior of my, my breakfast meal. But um, I think protein should be part of every meal that you consume. It's a satiety, a high satiety nutrient. And it also, you know, it's not something that causes blood glucose to go high. And I think it does help regulate appetite a little bit. So 
you know, all of that sort of plays into the recommendation. Is it the most important meal of the day? Uh, I leave that to much more learned people. I think it's important. Most important, I, 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 I might stop. <laughs> Can you speak to the difference between like a heart carbohydrate stimulation of insulin versus like a protein stimulation of insulin? Yeah, I think there's a little bit of confusion out there. You know, uh, protein contains, a lot of proteins contain amino acids that are what we call insulinogenic. So carbohydrate and then glucose is obviously the most potent stimulator we have of insulin. If you want a number, and I'm borrowing this, again, good friend and colleague, uh, Don Lehman, and he would probably say that protein on a gram for gram basis is usually about 20 to maybe 30% as effective on a gram per gram basis as carbohydrate in stimulating insulin release. And some proteins aren't as insulinogenic as others. So if you had a gram of carbohydrate, you release 10 units of insulin. If you had a gram of protein, you'd release probably three or four. I've seen situations where we've done studies where we get almost no insulin response in certain individuals to protein. And other people are, are quite sort of insulin producers, but it's far less potent in that regard than, than carbohydrates. So 10 grams of glucose versus 10 grams of, let's say, whey protein, you can expect about 20 to 30% of the response with whey protein. It's not, it's not zero. You get a, a mild insulin response, but it's, uh, it's there. Yeah. Can you speak to the protein leverage hypothesis? I heard you speak about this. I was like, wow, this is like, this is fascinating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So Simpson and Rabenheimer, two um, Australian, both friends, colleagues, I, I converse with them. We share some different views a little bit on Twitter, but they're, uh, they're prolific in, uh, in terms of the research they've generated on this. And, and the, the leverage hypothesis goes something like this, is that you know, below a certain level of protein, human beings are hardwired on some level, probably neurologically, to seek out food to try and meet their protein requirements. So if you're in a protein-scarce environment, you just eat more to try and hit that protein requirement. Where that requirement is, of course, and this may be, you know, is, is that where we prevent deficiency? In all likelihood, if you wanted to pick, you know, a point around which it would pivot, I would probably think that would be it. And then above that, the argument is, you know, if I eat more protein, does it suppress my food intake because I'm, I'm hitting my targets and, I'm, and, and protein is, is satiating and makes you feel full, et cetera. And that's, I think, where the controversy lies. So very demonstrable and reproducible across all kinds of species from fruit flies, even up to humans. When you're below uh, your requirement for protein, people tend to, uh, if given the opportunity and fruit flies and rats and everything, tend to forage for more food when they, they're below their protein requirements and just you know globally eat more. Whether they eat less when they're above their protein requirements is, I think, where the debate would be sort of centered. The Simpson-Rabernheimer and uh, lots of other people contributing to that thesis would probably say, you know what, we don't think it happens. I might disagree with that. I'm, I'm not a protein satiety person. I, I, I've 
been fortunate, however, to spend enough time sitting in conferences, usually as the speaker before or after a, a protein satiety person. So I've had the pleasure and, and privilege of listening to probably the, the world's two or three, four or five, however many best people on this. And, you know, they, they come out with, you know, protein is the most satiating macronutrient. Fair. Okay. And I'll buy that. Really, does it work in, in practice? You know, do high er protein diets? And I want to say, you know, hand on heart, when you sort of peel away all of the, the, the data, there's an effect there. I don't think it's huge, but I think it may be worth something that people should consider. And those are protein intakes that are above requirement levels. So the RDA, for example. So a real, like in a real day situation, a protein leverage hypothesis would be like, you were under whatever your protein target was, and you, you start eating other sources of macronutrients until you potentially could hit your protein. So you'd be like a muffin or others until you hit your protein target. Yeah, exactly. So if you're sitting around and you need 50 or 60 grams of protein, so you don't need a whole lot, but you're eating a bit, let's say a, a very high carbohydrate or or even a very high fat diet, and protein is a lower part on your macronutrient tree, and you're just not hitting those targets, you know, you begin to get a, a series of brain signals which is saying, eat some more, you know, eat, eat some more of this, or you know, don't stop here. And you begin to, in, in essence, kind of overeat to try and get that protein up to where you need it to be. The question then becomes is, you know, once you've hit that target and you're above it, does it then tip the scale in the opposite direction and say, you're good, now eat less. And whether you eat less than you require, that's where the leverage idea would um, suggest that it, it's there probably, but I think it's a relatively small effect. Yeah. A lot of the listeners to Muscle Medicine probably have weight loss on on their list of <laughs> desires. Can you speak to how like how nutrient dense sources of protein are actually advantageous to weight loss? Yeah, uh, look, we've done some work in weight loss and it's a tough go. I'll admit that. Every weight loss, not not every, that's not true, uh, but most big weight loss studies that we've done, we've always tried to incorporate some form of, of increased activity as well, which I think helps to tip the scale in the right direction on whether you lose weight or not. You know, the, the, the rider statement is always, as long as you're physically active, you know, you could even lose two to three percent of your body weight and you're in a much better position because you're physically active than, than you were if you you know, you lose no weight at all. So from that standpoint, the question becomes is, you know, at the energy budget that you're given to lose weight, so you require 200 or 2,200 calories and you say, I'm going to hit 200 every day. So you're creating that 200 calorie deficit. And I don't know where people sit on, you know, it's not all calories in, calories out. You know, fundamentally, every piece of weight loss has to run through energy balance. So you can you can twist the knobs any way you want and you can talk about metabolic flexibility and you can talk about permutations of that, but we'll, we're going to gloss over that and we're just going to say, I'm going to use easy, easy math because that makes it easy for me. And you've only got 2,000 calories to get, still get all the nutrients that you need 
And this is where, you know, nutrient dense sources of protein and more specifically, you know, we begin to talk about things like eggs and dairy and meat because you've got iron, zinc, vitamin D, you've got lots of other nutrients that, that come along with those sources of protein as being things that your body needs without having to resort to supplements and still getting, I think anyway, the satiety benefits of the protein that you're consuming as well. So, you know, from our perspective, it's all about meeting your energy budget and not going above it because you're aiming to lose weight and yet still meeting all of your nutrient needs because you're consuming foods that are nutrient dense as opposed to foods that are energy dense and nutrient poor. And that's where we come into these, you know, contrived foods, uh, value added foods that are just cheap nutrients slapped together, made to taste good, but yet don't have the nutrient density that you're, you're looking for. Right. I think a lot of people know in weight loss that there's fat loss. I don't know how many people know that there's also loss of skeletal muscle. And I was watching a video of, I think it was like a 40% caloric deficit. It was the readiness, <laughs> holy grail. Um, and it, it was a, a group, I think, of trained men that had a 40% caloric deficit and worked out six days a week, but they didn't lose that much skeletal muscle. Is that correct? Yeah. We talk in that paper and another study that we've done actually before that in women where we had 90 women in different groups about it's the combined role of higher protein. So not these, you know, exorbitantly high protein intakes, but probably, you know, around twice the RDA. So 1.6, 1.7 grams of protein per kilo. And then the combination of the exercise that these folks do that allows them to retain muscle. And I don't think it's, it's probably a sort of a, uh, a little bit of a lost concept to say that when people step on the scale and they're down X number of uh, pounds, they say, you know, hallelujah, like I'm meeting my weight loss goal. And the question really is, you know, from where have you lost the weight? You know, where you want to lose it from, of course, is body fat and not just the stuff that we all want to lose, which is, you know, it makes X part of our body look not the way we want it to look, trying to be as politically correct as possible. But, you know, body fat that's stored like within our visceral cavity, for example, which we know metabolically is a disaster. So can we lose body fat from these places? And can we then preserve what we would like to preserve? Because, you know, going all the way back to what we first started talking about, the, the furnace of our body and what we want to hang on to to be mobile and active as we get a little bit older and that's our muscles. So we call that quality weight loss. And so the protocol that you were talking about, which was um, a, a diabolical experiment, but we gave these guys, you know, everything that they had to eat for four weeks. And they, in four weeks, they lost um, four, I'm just do the quick math, about four kilos. So around 12 pounds, and it was exclusively body fat. And in fact, they, because they were working out and we gave them higher protein, um, in the form of you know whey protein sort of milkshakes, if you like, they were actually able to gain a little bit of muscle, and so that's the sort of a lot of personal trainers will say, hey, you know, you can gain muscle and lose fat at the same time. Uh, my caveat to that is, yes, you can, but it's not easy to do. It's easier to consume lots of food and gain muscle or consume very little food and lose fat, but you may lose muscle and or you may gain fat in, in 
both of those situations. So you can do it. It's not easy. You may lose your sanity. <laughs> People said, you know, that it was interesting when that study came out. First, they said, does it work in women? And I said, absolutely, it does. Like, in fact, you know, there's a study uh, that we published three years before this one, much larger and longer, but with a very, like a relatively moderate energy deficit, where we showed that uh, women consuming high herb protein, mostly from dairy sources, and you know, uh, again, full disclosure, funded by the dairy farmers and the U.S. National Dairy Council, uh, but very nutrient dense sources of protein. That these women lost everything that they lost in the 16 weeks of uh, the program that they were on was uh, was fat, and they gained muscle. So they got stronger. Uh, they get fitter. Their body. If you talk to them. And we actually had a health psychologist involved. They just talked about their body shape changing. And, you know, so what does that mean? It's generally their, the manifestation that they always mentioned was how their clothes fit. And, you know, I, I, not making a value judgment on that, but uh, every woman in that study, because they all lifted weights, didn't matter what group they were in, their confidence grew. And so that, those are the types of effects where we think, you know, I don't, personally weight loss is a it's a tough game um but it's all it's always as important to me that people feel better no matter how much weight they lose and that's the exercise effect i think that gets in there so if you can hang on to that uh but definitely from a metabolic standpoint and you know where you're heading in that vision of your future you hang on to muscle keep body fat down but definitely be physically active then um it, it's good to go, but uh, four weeks at a 40% energy deficit is, and a lot of people, they said, why didn't you go for longer? And I said, because I think the guys would have <laughs> tried to, you know, kill us in the end. Like it was, just try like a week of 40% energy. All you can talk and think about at the end of it um, is food. Uh, that's all, they, they don't actually, you can sort of mildly steer the conversation in different directions, but all they talk about is uh, is food. Yeah, I can imagine. Yeah. <laughs> Going on the topic of exercise, I know you've put a lot of data out there around resistance training and perceived exertion. And I'm curious, and I'm thinking of like the older population here, right? Of in terms of stimulating the muscle, like a high load, like heavy, heavy weights versus a high volume, like a lighter weight lots of reps, um, training of which one is there, is there one that's more effective? Are they both effective? How do you choose which <laughs> to go for? So we upset a lot of people when, when we started pushing this stuff out and like, it's not like we were the first to, to sort of address this. And I, and I think the, the strength and conditioning community sort of, you know, they saw it as a huge affront to the, the prescription to get stronger and fitter and, you know, obviously, if you're training, you know, NFL, NHL, you name it, or, you know, young athletes aspiring to, or you're just looking, you know, with these athletes to, to, to make them as big and fit and strong. So college age athletes, for example, th that was a huge part of, you know, what I used to do and still, you know, kind of touch a little bit. I would never say, you know, hey, the whole time you need to lift low weights, a lot of volume, and you need to lift it to voluntary failure, like all the time. But, but that's what we did in the lab is we sort of compared 
men and we're about to do the same studies in women we've we've got it in old people and and it it works no matter what is that the the muscle only really knows that the fibers are being active. It doesn't know that you're lifting a free weight or, uh, or doing it on a machine. It doesn't know whether you're lifting a heavy weight or a light weight. It's just that fibers are active or they're not active. Um, so the fatigue is the sort of, or the perceived fatigue, and so this is where the exertion part comes in, is really your external guide that you can use to sort of self-monitor the the activation of your muscles. So if you're coming to that last repetition and your arm is sort of shaking like that singer, you know, the sewing machine, I call it sewing machine fatigue. It doesn't matter how you get there. So if you take the heavy weight and you're lifting it and then slam, the stack comes down, that's fatigue. But if you get to that last rep and you're doing this sort of thing, your, your arms are shaking and you're putting it down and you maybe you have to have somebody help you, that's still fatigue. And that means you've driven the fibers in your muscle to be active. And a lot of people have you know, tried to use other measures to say this is superior to that. And look, I, I don't really care, to be honest with you, you know, all the strength and conditioning people that really are desperate to prove that we're, you know, we're, we're promoting a form of uh, weightlifting that is somehow detrimental to people uh, is not the point of why we did this. Our point was to say that um, fatigue or effort that leads to fatigue, or if you don't need to go to like, if fatigue is 10 out of 10, maybe you need to go to eight. And in the, in the center um, where I'm the director of, we have a lot of scales around the, the room with a rating of perceived exertion uh, scale. Most people, like the Borg scale, it's called. And at the top, 10 out of 10, it's bright red. And 9 out of 10 is, is orange. And 8 out of 10 and 7 out of 10 are yellow. You know, the, the colors make sense, sort yeah, of, right? Yeah. And we say to these, these people, um, you know, some of whom are in their – Ninth, tenth, uh, we have one in his eleventh decade of life, so he's 102. <laughs> wow, it's awesome. I know he's my poster child of like how to age well. We say, you know what? How do you feel today? Can you work to like the yellow? Can you get to the seven or eight? They're like, sure, I can probably do that. But some days they come in and it's it's a green day or it's a blue day, and 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 that's not the same as taking a, a an 18 or a 19 or a 16 or a 15 year old female male athlete who's you know has aspirations to stand on the podium in Tokyo and me saying just lift lightweights to fatigue all the time and you know the the S&C guys just they go berserk Um, and all we did was wanted to say let's expand the prescription of weightlifting which Mm -hmm. not a lot of people do to being something that doesn't require heavy weights and not that that's you know a bad thing like I still lift heavy weights nowhere near as heavy as I did 20 years ago and it's still part of the repertoire but it's not everything I do all the time yeah so if there was one group that did like eight to 12 reps for like hypertrophy training heavy weights and they hit perceived exertion and there was another group that did lighter weights more volume hit perceived exertion equally as effective uh, equally as effective you you your muscle gets the same stimulus to grow if that's the goal or the same stimulus to not shrink if that's the goal i.e for an older person you're not going to lose muscle and more importantly the functional benefit the stronger your muscle gets is really 
you know, as long as you practice lifting a heavier weight, it really doesn't matter. So, you know, from our perspective, all that we were trying to do was to show that some of the prescriptions, you know, in strength and conditioning around this leads to hypertrophy. Our, Our point was actually a lot of things lead to hypertrophy and it doesn't really matter how you get there. But I get it. It rankles a lot of people's feathers and it, you know, sort of rocks the boat. And, and we never got into this to, to change strength and conditioning prescription. The real ethos of it was just to show that, you know, these dogmatic figures that this is what you need to do to get hypertrophy. This is what you need to do to, you know, are, are actually incorrect. And so we're just trying to open the door to a broader range of weightlifting, resistance exercise activities for a larger percentage of, uh, of people that might think, you know, who wants to go in there and lug that heavy weight? Right. My point is, well, the lighter weight is still okay. Yeah. But try and work to a high degree of effort if, if you can. Yeah. Just do something to fatigue. <laughs> well, it, it, you know, and uh, my friend and colleague at McMaster, Marty Gabala and myself have a course on Coursera. Yes. It's free. Anybody can take it. Hacking exercise for health. It's, it's a lot of, it, it's fun, I think. It was super fun. I, I, I took it. Awesome. Yeah, well, so, it was great. <laughs> uh, and in that, like we constantly over and over emphasize that the, the true health benefits of, of being physically active are when you take somebody from nothing to something. And then more of something you get sort of, you know, increasingly you do get health benefits, but it, it's the dose response. And at a certain point, you know, if you've run 50 miles a week, running a hundred doesn't make you any better, really any better off. And, you know, some people will argue with that. There might be a little bit more that you can squeeze out of it, but um, it's really going from no miles a week to one or two miles a week or doing a little bit of resistance exercise where you were doing nothing. Yeah. I know we're winding down and you mentioned this earlier, so I don't want to brush over it. Okay. Protein does not cause kidney failure, kidney issues research doesn't support it. Yeah, look, uh, you know, this is a this is a 40, 50-year-old um, hypothesis um, put forward by a renal physiologist and clinician, um, Brenner. And basically, it's sort of the idea that, um, you know, in animal models, uh, if you give protein to these, these critters, uh, their, their kidneys begin to work really hard to excrete what is the end product of the um, protein breakdown, which in mammals is urea. And, you know, as a result, they sort of get tired and overloaded and they, they begin to fail. Um, and the, the concept that that happens in humans has sort of been the subject of, you know, sort of the medical treatise that everybody has been taught and a lot of dietitians are still taught as well. And I think the observation that has reinforced, although it's a, it's a circular logic observation that I think is, is fundamentally flawed, is that people with chronic kidney disease or renal failure are put on lower protein diets to reduce the amount of urea that their kidneys have to filter. Great strategy, and I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, not, a, I'm not a clinician or anything else like that, but then you know the, the tangent or the circular thinking is that protein therefore and i you know therefore in quotation marks caused 
the kidney decline. And, you know, that's first, that's circular logic and it's not true. And then when you look for evidence of that actually happening, and I'm not talking about observational associative evidence, but clinical trials where people have been fed higher protein and look for that decline in kidney function, it's not there. Now, observationally, some people have said, look, it's there. And then I can find just as many observational studies that show there's no relationship. And, you know, it's not just my opinion, but the World Health Organization, the Institute of Medicine and their protein recommendations say that there's no relationship between the decline in kidney function with age uh, and protein intake. So it's not just me that's saying this, but the entire sort of medical establishment. And because this hypothesis has been central to the teaching of renal physiology for so long, it's really difficult to get it to go away. Even now, we've published our, our systematic review and our meta-analysis, you know, so-called gold standard of evidence. And there are still uh, people who push back with uh, low quality, what we call observational associative evidence and say, look, and I'm like, that's not evidence, you know, and they say, well, absence of evidence isn't evidence of absence, and it becomes a circular argument. So we've published our evidence, and that's what I'll say, and if you've got something better, then put it out there, and we'll uh, we'll have a debate, but uh, honestly, uh, no data. Yeah. Last question. What are you looking forward to once the pandemic is behind us, and where can people find you? <laughs> well, I'll start with where people can find me. I'm sure. on Twitter. At MacKinProf, M-A-C-K-I-N-P-R-O-F. Uh, the same on Instagram. I'm on Facebook, uh, SNP PhD. I'm on LinkedIn. I don't do Snapchat. Never, never really put that out. Tried. I've got you know my no kids TikTok. My- <laughs> yeah, I'm not. I'm not doing TikTok. Um, you know, a little bit worried about whether the Chinese can find me. I sorry, <laughs> read the conspiracy theory. What am I looking forward to? Well, you know, I think we talked about it right at the top of the show. Zoom has been great. The thing that really makes my day uh, is to talk to the students that I'm, I'm really fortunate to have. They're the ones that do the work. I, I bask in, in their reflected hard work. So uh, I, I miss them. I miss talking to them in person as opposed to Zoom. I have had a small bubble of friends that I've been, um, my wife and I have been really fortunate to have had, you know, real people contact with. Um, I think we're all just, just missing people. I'm a big shaker of hands, hugger, you know, and, yeah. and I miss, so yeah, I think we all just, it, people, like this will come to an end. It has to, and it will. I'm looking forward to the party when it does. <laughs> <laughs> Dude, thank you so much. It's been great. It, absolutely. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on the show. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, all feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys. So much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here. <laughs>